0: Welcome back as we continue our final episode with the reading of The Willoughbys by Lois Lowry. Chapter 21 A Decision an announcement, and an unexpected arrival. It had taken a month, but Commander Melanoff felt certain, taking a test bite alone in his lab, that the candy was perfect. His masterpiece. So many false starts. He chuckled down, realizing that it had been simple in the end, the addition of a tiny portion of nougat, before he poured the melted chocolate over and allowed it to harden on the small, delectable bar. Now that his experimental work was complete, he would give the formula, the recipe to the workers at his factory, and they could begin production, mixing the ingredients in huge stainless steel vats. Thousands of the bars would soon be popping out in orderly rows from the final machine, and then they would go to the packaging department where they would be hygienically sealed into their paper wrappers with the name in bright red letters then packed into cartons and shipped to distributors throughout the world. Soon they would appear in corner stores, in movie theater refreshment cases, in vending machines everywhere. He could picture them there. He could picture laughing children, indulgent grandmothers, teenagers, all of them, pointing to what would soon be familiar red letters and asking for, asking for, he groaned, the name. He he still wasn't certain what the name should be, but he began to feel that it should not be a name referring to any of the ingredients or to any body mechanics. No licking or chewing or munching references. No, it it needed something unusual, something sweet as a name. He was actually thinking about naming the new candy bar after his child. Downstairs in the mansion, baby Ruth was playing, as she often did, in the front hall. She had just learned to walk. Still unsteady on her chubby legs, she toddled across the oriental rug, trying to catch the cats. twitched their tails mischievously to tease her, but were adept at leaping, just out of her reach as she approached. The twins were playing a game of checkers in the parlor, and Tim was industriously putting together a model airplane out of balsa wood, being very careful not to sniff the glue. In the kitchen, Jane was helping Nanny frost some cupcakes. Commander Melanoff came down from the laboratory to announce the final perfection of the candy he'd been working on now for a month. He had a proud look, thinking of his candy, and when he stood on the lowest landing of the elegant staircase and saw his family busy with their happy enterprises, his look became fond as well. Such a short time ago, he had been a grieving, miserable, and messy, yes, he had to admit, messy man, who thought there was nothing left to look forward to. Now there were delicious odors wafting in from the kitchen. There were five children in residence who were old fashioned, well behaved, clean, healthy, and bright. Twilight streamed in through the high windows, and the windows were clean and well polished. The floors gleamed with wax. Commander Melanoff looked around and smiled with pride and satisfaction. The only thing within his sight that was slightly jarring, a little off putting, a wee bit out of order was the huge stack of crumpled and yellowing papers against the wall. It had been there so long that the cats no longer batted at it, and baby Ruth had outgrown her interest in it, and now that she could walk and had other things to examine. But the commander noticed it now, and thought briefly about what it represented of his sad past. He considered what he should do. Then he cleared his throat loudly, as if preparing to make an announcement. Everyone looked up even the cats. Annie emerged from the kitchen with a spatula in one hand and Jane by her side. I've made a decision, Commander Melendorf announced. You've chosen a name for the candy, asked Tim. The commander shook his head. Oh, that. Yes, I, I think so, but that is not the topic of my decision. Barnaby A. surreptitiously made his move on the checkerboard took one of his brother's men and kinged himself. Dinner's almost ready. Chicken, Nanny pointed out. Not to rush you. I'll be brief, the commander replied. Gather round, everyone, Nanny, Baby Ruth, Willoughby's, Tim A, B, and Jane. He had become accustomed to the names A and B, but he thought again, as he often had, that there was something puzzlingly familiar about the name Willoughby. He smiled at all of them from the stairs when they had gathered curiously to hear his announcement. This house, he began, has changed greatly in the past months, all because of you, each one of you. Baby Ruth, of course, who appeared so mysteriously and soothed my grief. The toddler, recognizing her name, grinned and giggled. One day, quite soon, a fabulous candy bar will be named for her. Tim, the commander looked at the boy fondly. What can I say about a fine, old-fashioned lad? Of course, we all lament the regrettable and mysterious loss of your parents, but in the true spirit of orphanhood, you have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and— What are bootstraps, exactly? whispered Jane loudly. Shh, Tim told her. The commander continued. And one day in the future, I will send you to law school, and you shall become of counsel to Melanoff Industries. A and B, Commander Melanoff looked benignly at the twins. It was a Tuesday, and Barnaby B. was wearing the sweater. The overlong sleeves made it difficult to move his checkers on the board, but the twins were accustomed to that obstacle. Tomorrow, Barnaby A. would wear the sweater, and the handicap would be reversed. What can I say about these lovely boys? They remind me of— He sniffed and wiped his eyes. They are the age of that— He dabbed again with his hanky. Well, I won't dwell on my own tragedy. I will say that one day, when you become of age, I will select names for you so that you will no longer be labeled inadequately by letters. I will. We have names, the twins said in unison. Shh, Tim told them. And do, Jane, the commander went on. Such an adorable, self-assured little girl who... I'm hungry, Jane said loudly. Shh, Tim told her. The commander blew Jane a kiss. Finally, dear Nanny. Commander Melanoff fixed his eyes on Nanny with a lovesick gaze. She has made my house a home, and once it was filthy, now it is clean. Once it was cold, now it is warm. Once it was quiet, now it rejoices. Once, commander, said Nanny in her no-nonsense voice, it's not just chicken. It is chicken breast cooked in a lemon and caper sauce, and it is congealing and will soon be inedible. Could we hurry this speech along? The commander chuckled. (laughs) I'm sorry, I do meander, conversationally, and all of this speech-making was just preliminary to my announcement. We'll go and eat our dinner right away. The announcement was simply that I've decided to do away with the stack. His gesture dramatically toward the immense pile of unopened letters and telegrams from Switzerland. After dinner, is there dessert, by the way? Nanny nodded. Creme caramel, she said, if it hasn't been burned to a crisp. After dessert, he went on, we will make a fire in the fireplace and we will burn the stack little by little. Shall we open everything first, asked Tim. It would take forever. No need, Commander Malinoff said. It is simply repetitions of terrible news. I stopped opening them after the first year and a half. We will burn them unopened. They began to move toward the dining room where the table was set for dinner. Nanny picked up baby Ruth and carried her to her mahogany high chair. He's right, Jane said sweetly from her suite as she unfolded her linen napkin and laid it tidily on the lap of her ruffled frock. I opened a lot of them. They were very boring. Did you, dear? Nanny placed the platter of chicken in front of Commander Melanoff. Were you practicing your reading like a good girl? Jane nodded. Yes, but it was just... When are you coming to get us? When are you coming to get us? Over and over. Who was supposed to come get who? Tim asked. He began to pass the plates, each with its serving of chicken around. Whom, dear, Nanny reminded him. Commander Melanoff drizzled some of the lemon and caper sauce on his chicken. He tasted a bit and closed his eyes in delight yummy nanny he said as always who was supposed to come get whom jane tim asked again grammatically correct this time jane shrugged i don't know she never said and then the next year she was angry the letters kept saying i never liked you anyway you old goat you never picked up your dirty socks Old goat is not a very pleasant phrase, Nanny told her. Let's never use it ourselves. Would you pass me some of the broccoli, eh? Commander Melanoff said politely. Help yourself first. She said worse than old goat, Jane pointed out. Who did, dear? The commander asked. Have you tried the broccoli? There's a smidgen of grated cheese on it, I think. I don't know who. She didn't ever say her name. Jane tasted the broccoli. But the last letter, the one that came last month, the one you put on the very tippy top of the stack, that one had a bad word in it. Commander Melanoff sighed. Those rescuers, it must have become so frustrating for them over the years. I, I should have told them to stop digging long ago. I'm sorry they used the bad word, Jane. Let's never think about it again. It wasn't a they. Jane told him. It was a she. May I say the bad word? Just once and very softly, and Annie gave her permission. A hush fell over the table as everyone waited for Jane, sweet Jane, to say a bad word. Jane scrunched up her face, remembering the letter exactly. Then she recited softly what she had read. You old fart. Your son is just like you. He never picks up after himself. My new husband and I have sent him off to make his own way in the world. Good riddance to you both. Jane glanced at Natty. Riddance is a very bad word, and I won't ever say it again. But no one heard Jane. They heard only the crashing sound of Commander Melanoff's chair tipping over as he leaped to his feet, dashed to the hall, and began pawing through the stack of mail. They could hear him sobbing loudly and repeating the words, My son! My son! Next, still sitting there, stunned by the turn of events, they heard the shrill ring of the doorbell. Nanny rose abruptly and ran forward, and all of the children followed except baby Ruth, who, confined to her high chair, banged her spoon happily and chortled when the two cats jumped onto the table and began eating the chicken. Tell whoever it is to go away, sobbed Commander Melinoff. He was kneeling on the floor surrounded by envelopes, which he was tearing open one by one as he wept. I can't face anyone now. Nanny opened the door politely, prepared to follow his instructions. But she stepped back, startled, at the sight of a young boy, shivering in the chilly evening. His hair was uncut, shaggy, and down to his shoulders. His face was dirty. He was thin and unkempt wearing an odd pair of short leather pants that were ragged and grease-stained. His exposed knees were scraped and bruised, and his woolen socks were torn and sagging. It's Peter, the goat herd, murmured Tim in astonishment. Right, out of Heidi. We can teach him to read and write, and then we'll all smile and hug and say religious things. Nanny scolded him. She stood aside and allowed the beraggled boy to enter. He looked around at each of them in turn with no sign of recognition, but his face changed when he caught sight of the heavy man in the tweed jacket who was kneeling and weeping on the hall floor. His eyes lit up. Papa, he said, I've come home. Epilogue. Oh, what is there to say at the happy conclusion of an old-fashioned story? There are details to be filled in and explained, of course, and reference made to future events. How did Commander Melanoff's young son make his way halfway around the world with only a silly feathered hat full of Swiss francs and no passport or other official documents? Well, he was an old-fashioned enterprising lad. In Rotterdam, one of the major seaports of Europe, he stowed away on a vessel heading across the Atlantic with its cargo. He was discovered, of course, and put to work as a cabin boy. Badly treated, overworked, never paid, and his clean underwear was stolen by brigands and the Azores. But he made it to his destination and was the better for it, having overcome hardships so successfully. He would... Go on eventually to become the president of his father's company and to maintain its reputation for the finest of confectionaries. Sad to say, the candy bar that the commander had worked so hard on never became a success. Perhaps the fault lay in its name, he had often said, thinking of Lickety Twist, such a triumph that the name was everything. But he had named the candy bar Little Ruthie, and it simply never caught on. He didn't care, really. His fortune was already vast, and when his son was restored to him, and when he married Nanny, it should come to no surprise that is what he did. He felt fulfilled in every way. Names, though, did remain a bit of a problem. In the happy confusion on the evening of Commander Melanoff's son's reappearance, one of the twins asked the disheveled boy, What's your name? And the boy replied, Barnaby. The twins looked at each other. C, one suggested. "'See what?' asked the new Barnaby. "'See my son!' Commander Melanoff exclaimed, still beside himself with joy. He kept the boy's dirty face in his hands, kissed each cheek, and beamed down at him. "'No,' the twins explained. "'We meant that we're also Barnabys.' "'I'm Barnaby A,' said Juan, "'and I'm Barnaby B, so he has to be C.' Nonsense. No son of mine is going to be C. Do you two have middle names? We'll rename you with your middle names. The twins sighed and shuffled their feet in embarrassment. Tim stepped forward to explain. I'm Timothy Anthony Malachy Willoughby, he pointed out, because our parents, who were, excuse me, nanny, dolts, thought it was important to have as many syllables as possible. That is, if one was a boy. He glanced sympathetically at his sister, Jane. And so the twins are, well, the night the twins were born, they had just been to an Italian restaurant. So they are, he looked at his brothers. Do you want to say it? He asked them. The twins nodded. I'm Barnaby Linguini Rotini Willoughby, one said with a sigh. And I'm Barnaby Ravioli Fusilli Willoughby his brother, blushing, explained. Oh, my goodness, Commander Melanoff said. I don't quite know what to do about that, but I'm not fond of A, B, and C. I fear it will hinder you eventually in the business world. Any suggestions? He looked around, seeking help. Why don't we change their names, Tim said. Yes, I'd so like to be Bill, Barnaby A. said. And could I be Joe? His twin asked. And so it was done. They went before a judge, were adopted, along with their sister and brother, and became Bill and Joe, which they remained their entire lives, very happily. After the children all became official Melanoffs, the commander stopped wondering where he had heard the name Willoughby before. Had he not Burned it along with all the Swiss correspondence, he might have reread the note that had once been attached to baby Ruth. Notice the penciled instruction. If there's any reward to be had for this beastly baby, it must go to the Willoughbys. And it would have answered the question, but it might have raised new questions. And so it is fortuitous that the note and the mystery disappeared. The third Barnaby retained his name, but was always known as Junior. Commander Melanoff's name, it seemed, was also Barnaby. He later invented something called Junior Mints, which might have been quite successful had someone else, as it turned out, not already invented them. Nothing ever surpassed Lickety Twist. Baby Ruth, when she became an adult, made a search for her biological mother and found that the woman's life had taken a turn for the better and she was now living quite comfortably, in Champaign, Illinois. Ruth had the wicker basket gold-plated as a souvenir and gave it to her for Christmas. She married, surprisingly, her stepbrother Tim, who, as predicted, became an attorney. The brass plate on his office door at the candy factory said, Timothy Anthony Malachy Willoughby Melanoff Esquire of Counsel. The job allowed him to be bossy and belittling, but he adored his wife and was never ruthless again. The twins, Bill and Joe, never married. Today, they operate a chain of clothing stores called Big Sweaters, which offers two-for-one prices to parents of twins. Jane grew up and became a professor of feminist literature. Eventually, she married a man named Smith and had triplet daughters, whom she named Lavender, Arpeggio, and Noxima. The postmaster and his wife in Switzerland ran the little post office efficiently for many, many years. They never had children, and just as well, because they didn't care for the mess that children made. Sometimes Commander Melanoff, with his second wife Nanny and their six children when they were still young, visited Switzerland on vacations, hiking in the summer, skiing in the winter. They always cordially stopped in the village post office to say hello and have a cup of tea. During such visits, the four former Willoughbys, who had no connection, after all, to the postmaster and his wife, always excused themselves politely and took a few moments to walk together up the serene little path nearby. There, at the foot of the mountain, they stood solemnly, passing binoculars back and forth and gazing at the treacherous peak that had orphaned the four of them. Together they saluted the distant figures of their parents who had frozen into place, happy to have achieved such heights, with gleaming smiles on their faces forever. It was not a sad occasion, really. Just something the Willoughbys did and always followed with Coco. The end. I hope you've enjoyed this story of the Willoughbys. If you'd like to continue the adventures, you can get the sequel entitled The Willoughbys Return. Also, you can check out The Willoughbys, based off the characters by Lois Lowry, on Netflix.